0: I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and then to the gentiles i preached that they should repent and turn to god and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds that is why some some jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me but god has helped me to this very day so i stand here and testify to small and great alike i'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and moses said would happen that the messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. This is the word of God.
1: So right now here at Reality Church London, we're in the midst of a sermon series titled Church Alive. And what we're doing each week is we're looking at a different part of the book of Acts, which is the record of the first Christian church. And we're asking what makes a church alive? What is it that helps a church have a vibrancy and a joy as it loves and serves its community and it serves its city. And what we're going to see today and what we're going to focus on actually for the next few weeks is that one of the marks of a church that is alive is it's a church that's centered on the gospel. That's what we see here in Acts and that will be true for our church. A church alive is a church that's rooted in and experiencing the power of the gospel to change lives, to change the church, and to change the city. And some of you, as I say that, you say, oh, that's great, I'm thinking about Christianity, I'm exploring, I'm wondering, I'd love to learn more about the gospel. But others of you say, well, that's kind of basic, isn't it? I mean, I've been going to church for a long time, I've been a member here. Is that kind of basic stuff, talking about the gospel? But the truth is that for all of us, The gospel is actually not just the way you begin or start a Christian journey. It's the power for the whole Christian life. And I hope that as we spend a few weeks talking about the gospel and the way it works in the church, that many of us who think we understand the gospel may actually realize that we're just scratching the surface of its depth and its power. One of my favorite stories, there was a man named Martin Luther. He was a very significant... A historical figure during the 16th century. And he was a monk, he was a pastor. And his job was to teach the Bible and to help other people know about God and God's word. And so he's in his monastery, he's doing the work of a pastor and he's weighed down by guilt and by anxiety. His conscience is always feeling uncomfortable. And then one day he was reading through the Bible, he was reading through the book of Romans, And he says, as he encountered a place there in Romans chapter 1, that finally he understood the gospel. And it was like light broke into his darkness. He says it was like burdens fell off of his shoulders. Now think about that. Here is a guy whose job it is to help other people know God, and he was still coming to grips with what the gospel was. He still didn't fully get it until God made the gospel real and beautiful to him. And in one place, Martin Luther, writing about his own experience, says this, just as the earth does not generate rain and cannot of itself work to produce it, but it receives it by the mere gift of God from above. So this heavenly righteousness, we'll talk about that in a second, is given by God without our working for or deserving it. We do nothing in this matter We give nothing to God, we simply receive and allow someone else to work in us, and that is Jesus. And so whether it's someone like Martin Luther or others, it's a journey to understand the free gift of grace of God to us in the gospel. But that's what we want to talk about, what the gospel is and how the gospel changes a life, how the gospel can change your life. And to do that, We're gonna be looking at Acts 26. Now this is a really important place to look at what the gospel is because here in Acts 26, we see the apostle Paul describing how the gospel changed his life. This is the third time in the book of Acts this story is recounted. So it's a really important story for the early church. What we don't have printed here in the text is that Paul was a very fierce persecutor of Christians. His mission in life was to destroy Christianity, to crush the followers of Jesus. But then one day Jesus found him and changed his life. And it was the gospel that brought about that transformation. And so this is a great place as any to look and to understand what the gospel is and how the gospel changes our world, how it changes a person's life. So today's sermon, it's only two points. It's only a two pointer today, but don't be deceived. The second point has a lot of subpoints two points. First, what the gospel is, and second, what the gospel gives. What the gospel is and what the gospel gives. So, before we can talk about how the gospel changes your life, we need to know what it is. We need to understand the content of the gospel, and the best way I can do that is to invite you to look down at verse 23, the last verse of the passage. This is, in a nutshell, what the gospel is. Paul says, that Messiah would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. In a nutshell, that's Paul's statement of the gospel. But let me give you a definition, and then we'll spend a few minutes unpacking it. The gospel is the good news of God's plan to make the world whole, through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Good news to make the world whole through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. The Messiah Jesus, he would suffer, he would die, and he would rise. And that, that truth is gospel. So let me just take that definition and unpack two ideas that are really significant, really important for thinking about what the gospel is. First... That definition assumes that the gospel is news. The gospel is news. It's an announcement of something that Jesus did. It's an announcement of something that happened in time and space. Now, that's important because many people, maybe some of you, when you think of Christianity, you think of the message of Christianity more like advice, So Christianity is about telling you how to be a good person, how to be right with God, how to live a good life. And so we boil the message of Christianity down to advice, a kind of self-improvement project. But notice Paul here in our story, he's not on a self-help journey. He's going to crush Christians. And God in Jesus decisively confronts him and changes his life. The gospel, Paul says, is objective fact that comes to confront you. It's not advice about how to improve yourself. It's news about something that happened in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's news, not advice. And so the first thing we have to understand, if we're going to really understand what the gospel is, is it's objective content that confronts us where we are not advice about how to improve yourself or make your life a little bit better. Jesus is not an accessory, he's the Lord. That's what Paul's saying, and he lived, he died, and he rose, and that fact, that news, has the power to change everything. But second, not just as the gospel news, but the second thing I wanna draw out from this passage, which is significant, is the gospel is good news for the story of humanity. Can you go with me to verse 22? There in verse 22, right before Paul introduces the gospel, he gives that summary, he says in verse 22, I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. Now, that's significant because Paul's saying, in effect, Jesus, the Messiah who came and he suffered and he rose again, all of that, his life and his death and his resurrection, that didn't come out of nowhere. But it's actually the climax of a story that started at the very beginning of creation. When Paul references Moses, he's talking about the books of the Bible that Moses wrote. And that includes Genesis, the very first story of the Bible. And in Genesis, what we see is God makes our first parents, Adam and Eve. And he puts them in the Garden of Eden, which is a place of paradise. It's a world just as you'd want it to be. And God says, you can enjoy everything. I've given you all of this for your benefit. I just don't want you to eat from one particular tree over there. I want you to trust me and I want you to obey me. But Adam and Eve, instead of obeying and honoring God, they sin. They act selfishly. And that's always what sin is. Before it's a set of behavior, sin is a posture of the heart. That says to God, I don't want you, I don't need you, I'm going to do it my way. That's what Adam and Eve did. And as a result of that rebellion, sin comes into the world and it breaks our world. It breaks things. That's what sin always does. It brings separation. It brings alienation. Sin is what makes this world sometimes turn in on itself. It's why bodies sometimes break down. It's why waves sometimes rise too high and crush homes and communities. It's why there's conflict in relationships. Sin, at a very fundamental level, breaks things down. And ultimately, sin is what keeps us separated from God. It's what makes you feel uncomfortable in your own skin. It's why we are often trying to prove ourselves and find a sense of acceptance and belonging. That's what sin does. And what Paul's saying is that way back when humanity first experienced this plague, this disease called sin, right at that moment, God began making a promise. That one day he would send someone who would come to deliver the world from sin. Deliver the world from the judgment and the burden and the punishment that their sin brought into the world. And all the way back in Genesis, God begins to say, and that's gonna happen through a sacrificial substitute. And then of course, as the Old Testament goes on, there's more hints and pictures and images, but now Paul's saying it culminates in Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection, that's the answer to the world's great predicament. That's the way sin can be dealt with through the atoning sacrificial saving work of Jesus Christ. So that's the gospel, what Jesus came to do and how it's connected to the great problem, the great burden that the world has experienced. That's the gospel. Now, so much more I can say. But what I wanna do now, just to shift gears, and again, this is only the first sermon and of a few weeks talking about what the gospel is. But I wanna do now is actually shift gears and relatively briefly, try to show you what the gospel gives. If the essence, the content of the gospel is the person and the accomplishment of what Jesus did, the question then is when you trust it, when you believe, when you rest in that accomplishment, when you see the good news of what Jesus has done and you put your faith in it, what does that give? What does that bring into your life? Three things and then we'll be done. What does the gospel give? A new identity, place in a family, and a sure and steady hope. That's what the gospel can give you today. That's what the gospel gives us a new identity, place in a family, and a sure and steady hope. So, first, what do we mean when we say the gospel gives us a new identity? Look with me, if you would, at verse 18. In verse 18 of the passage, Jesus is actually talking to Paul. This is the day that Paul was converted. And one of the things that Jesus says to Paul is, look, I'm going to send you out into the world. You're going to share the gospel to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. From the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So much I could unpack there, but for time's sake, I only want to focus on that word sanctified. It's a big theological word, but what does it mean? Well, if I were to boil it down to its simplest definition, a sanctified person is someone who feels safe in their own skin because they know that they've been accepted. A sanctified person is at rest, they're at peace because they know they've been accepted, they know that they belong. And the fact is, for all of Paul's life, up until the moment that Jesus confronted him, Paul was trying to sanctify himself. Paul was trying to make a way for himself to feel accepted, to feel like he belonged, to feel like he was safe. All of his life was spent doing that, and so it's not printed here in our handout, but in the earlier part of chapter 26, Paul says, for example, I have lived ever since I was a child, conforming to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And what Paul was saying was simply, I was doing everything I could to obey all the rules, to keep all the rituals, to obey all the commands. For what purpose? So that I would be right with God, so that I would fit into the community, so that I would would know that I'm okay. Okay. That I would know that I'm accepted. And that was what Paul was doing for his whole life. Trying to feel like he fit. Like he belonged. And whether or not people today realize it, we are all of us constantly trying to find a sense of belonging. An identity. A sense that we fit. That we matter. That we're safe and that we're accepted. So for some people, your identity, your sense of self-worth is based on what you produce. It's based on what you achieve. Maybe it's at work or in a hobby, a avocation. But your sense of self is directly connected to your output and your productivity. For others still, your identity is based on a community, a family, what your parents or what your siblings say about you or the way you fit in with a community of friends. That's where you get your sense of worth and identity. For others still, Identity is rooted in romance. I'm nobody until somebody loves me, you might feel. For others, identity is found in how you express yourself to the world, your sexuality, your political ideology, the way you express. You look inside, you see what's there, and you express that and say, that's who I am. For others still, your identity is based on being a really good and moral person, I'm nice to others, I care for the poor, I do good things. And maybe for some of you, your identity is some combination of all those things. But here's the point. None of those things in themselves are bad. That's all an important part of life. But none of those things are strong enough to bear your whole self. None of those things can give you a sense of identity that's stable and strong and can withstand pressure that comes bearing down. All of those things, if those are the things that you build your identity on solely, you'll find your soul exhausted. Think about it. If your identity comes from what you produce and achieve, then you never get to rest. You're always working, always trying, and always feeling insecure when you find somebody next to you who's actually a little bit smarter and a little bit more efficient and who gets up a little bit earlier and who stays up a little bit later than you do. If your sense of identity is rooted in what your family thinks or what your community thinks, then you never get to rest from pleasing people. And you live with constant pressure and burden. Are they upset with me? Is it okay? Do they love me? And it's never-ending. It's exhausting. If your identity, if your sense of self-worth is rooted in being a really nice, good, moral person, then you'll either feel insecure because you know you're not doing enough or you'll feel proud and smug when you encounter anybody who doesn't live up to your standards. In other words, all of those ways of constructing an identity ultimately will let you down. But here's what Paul realized. This is what Jesus says in verse 18, I'm going to show you how to be sanctified by faith in me. The Christian gospel says that you get an identity not based on what you achieve, but based on what you receive. It's a gift given to you because of what Jesus has accomplished. And that in the essence, right, when you trust in what Jesus has done, his life, his death, his resurrection, it's as if the gospel means Jesus, who lived a perfect life, gives you his perfection. And he takes upon himself all of your imperfection. And there's a great switcheroo that happens. And in that exchange, in that change, we who didn't deserve God's grace receive it because you're literally clothed with the perfection of Jesus. The best image to describe this, the best image that we have to capture what this means is adoption. You know, a child who's adopted, what happens instantly and immediately They receive all the rights and the privileges and the benefits of the family that they've brought into. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. They didn't do anything to achieve it. It was given to them. And the gospel says that in Jesus, you can be adopted into God's family. That you receive a new name and a status, not in yourself, but in and through the covering of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul realized. I can rest I can be sanctified in Jesus. Now, I'm just going to close this point by reading to you an excerpt from Rebecca Pippert. One of her books has really helped me understand this new identity that we have in the gospel. So she writes this. Let me just read this quote to you. She says, We don't have to prove our worth because in Christ we can be forgiven. Through Christ we are accepted, adopted, Our most central identity becomes that we are children of God. We walk with confidence and freedom because we know the one who runs the world is a perfect, kind father who calls us his sons and daughters. The cross proves that God's love and acceptance of us isn't based on our performance, but on Jesus's. It is in him that we find our deepest security. The gospel gives a new identity. Second, and very briefly, the gospel gives you a place in a family. Now, we're going to come back to this in future weeks, but I just want to show you, when Jesus confronts Paul, look down at verse 14. Jesus says to Paul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. In verse 15, Paul says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, this is stunning, but here's what happens. Paul is persecuting Christians. And when Jesus confronts him, he says, you're persecuting me. And what Jesus is saying is, I so indwell my people that when you hurt them, you're hurting me. And Paul would realize from this moment forward that to follow Jesus means to be part of a community of people that follow him, a church. Now, we don't have time. I wish I did. I'm not going to go into that more now. But just know this is one of the things that the gospel does. It brings us into a family. It brings us into a new church community. But the last thing I want to show you today, what does the gospel give? Identity, family, and finally, a sure and steady hope. This is where we'll end today. When the gospel comes into your life, it gives you a new hope for living. And the hope that the gospel gives isn't hope the way we often use the word. Biblical hope is not I hope my team wins the Premier League this year. That might happen or it might not happen. But that's not biblical hope. Hope, according to the Bible, is deep confidence of something coming guaranteed in your future. It's confident expectation of future good. And what Paul says is to be a Christian is to have at the very center of your soul an unshakable hope. And the reason he has that is again verse 23. Let me read it to you, and I hope you saw this as we read it earlier, but it's stunning. Paul says in verse 23 that Messiah would suffer, and notice, as the first to rise from the dead. Now that's a hugely important phrase because when Paul says Jesus is the first to rise from the dead, you say, wait a second, I think other people in the Bible have been raised from the dead. Isn't that true? And it is, But Jesus is the first in the sense that he was the only one to rise from the dead, never to die again. Jesus was the first to rise, to ascend into glory, and to never experience death beyond that. And what this passage is saying is that even though Jesus was the first, he's not going to be the last. And this is introducing this glorious Christian doctrine called the hope or the resurrection of the dead. And what this means, and I'm gonna be brief and try to summarize here, but what Paul's pointing to is the very fact that because Jesus beat death, it means that ultimately the whole world is going to be healed. And you yourself, if you trust in Jesus, your future is a glorious physical future. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first started going to church, I would hear people talk about heaven. I don't know where this came from. But when they would talk about heaven, what I thought they were describing was basically floating on clouds, wearing white robes forever while angels played harps. And, you know, that's okay, I guess, but that didn't sound very exciting. That didn't seem very, you know, something I would be very enjoying. But when you actually read Scripture and you see what the Bible describes about the kingdom of heaven, you realize it's much different than that. The, the, when, when the Bible talks about Heaven, it talks about a city. It describes a place that we're in and we're there together and we're more real, more physical than we've ever been before. And there's industry and commerce and food and culture. It's a place. It's a city more real and more alive than any city we've experienced to this point. And Paul says, Because Jesus rose from the dead, I know that that future is coming that that future is my future. And what that hope, what that assurance did is it came into Paul's life and it became an anchor. Now, what's an anchor? An anchor is really important. If you're sailing, an anchor is not how you avoid storms. An anchor is how you don't tip over in the midst of them. An anchor keeps you steady and stable in the midst of the storm. And what Paul says is when I became a Christian, actually, my life got harder than it used to be but I have an anchor now for my soul, a hope, a confidence that the future is going to be okay. And the promise of that future breaks into Paul's present and it gives him hope no matter what he faces. And friends, don't we need this hope today? As we talk about what's happening in Ukraine, as many of you battle medical challenges right now in your own life, as some of you are experiencing intense financial pressure as you're battling loneliness and disappointment at work. We need hope. And the Christian gospel says there is a real solid hope beyond the walls of this world that will be an anchor for your soul no matter what you face. And that comes because of what Jesus has given us in the gospel. Close with a few words that have been steadying for me through some of the hardest moments of my life. This is from Thomas Brooks. And he wrote to encourage his church years ago and he said this. For a close, remember this. Your life is short, your duties many, your assistance great, and your reward sure. Therefore, faint not, hold on and hold up in ways of well-doing. And heaven will make amends for all. That's true because of the gospel. That's what the gospel gives, a new identity, place in a family, and a sure and steady hope. May God give us that today. Let's pray. Our God, thank you for this time that we've been able to look at Acts 26 and think together about what the gospel is. But Lord, now I pray, we pray that you would help us not just to know what the gospel is, but to experience it. That in this moment, you would make the gospel real to us that you would change us by the gospel and that we would live with the hope that it brings. We pray this together in Jesus' name, amen.